0: This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. In this conversation, I was especially keen to talk to Norman about his life beyond his Covid role. It was wonderful to get to know the man behind the fame as he opened up whilst discussing his five. So, Norman, welcome to Five of My Life. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Nigel. I'm really looking forward to this. Now, your choices are going to take us... Uh, on a journey through the 80s, 60s and 40s. But before we get to your choices, I have to confess, mate, that I read at the weekend your book So You Think You Know What's Good For You. Uh, And I have to congratulate you, just wonderful. Well, thank you very much, that's very kind of you. Um, Tell us a little bit about the motivation behind writing that book. Well, I think it's been in me for a while.
1: Um, I. So I went through a period. Well, still do. Of giving a lot of talks to people who are younger than me. So usually around about the millennial age group, and they're wanting to know about health. They're a very engaged group of people who know a lot about their health. Had lots of questions, and um, and they didn't know what to trust, who to trust, what decisions to be made. There's a lot of health anxiety around. You know, what should I be eating? Low carb, high protein. What supplements should I be taking? How much sleep should I be getting? I'm not getting eight hours a night. That means I'm gonna get dementia, doesn't it? Um, You know, there's an epidemic of insomnia because people are worried about insomnia. And it just struck me there's a lot of people are worried about a lot of stuff they don't need to be worried about. And also for years, I've hated the standard health book, which is wags it's finger at you, gives you a simple solution to a complicated problem. And as an American humorist, uh, H.L. Mencken said, uh, for every, I'm um, paraphrasing, for every complicated problem, is a simple solution that's always wrong. And, you know, just to show people actually what matters. And um, and with some, it's a bit of a memoir as well. So there's some anecdotes about my life. But, but I also discovered really what, I, I mean, it was obvious that what was interesting, millennials, interests everybody. So it is a book for all age groups. But it's not a question and answer. It's, it's basically, it's a bit anecdotal in terms of my life and idiosyncratic. It's not a comprehensive book. But be, but because it was originally for millennials, there's a fair bit of sex drugs and rock and roll in it as well.
0: It's fabulous. I, I can't recommend it highly enough. The, the, the one thing in it that, that, for me, goes to what you've just said, which I've just found very helpful, so thank you, was Drink to Thirst. That's just, I mean, mean, I've been told and I'm surrounded by uh, friends who carry around water bottles and feel they have to drink, I don't know, four litres of water and and it's all bollocks.
1: Yeah, it is all bollocks. Um, They used to do that for, uh, well, just to give you an example, the Ethiopian high marathon runners, the high country runners run at their fastest 2% dry and they, they discovered a real problem with elite athletes and water toxicity by forcing them to drink. So athletes are now taught to drink to thirst. Now, it's a bit of an exception there with older people who might be have a bit of dementia, but essentially, uh, for the rest of us who are otherwise healthy, don't have any kidney disease,
0: I love it. Now, we're going to get into your first choice, which is always the film on Five of My Life. Uh, And you have chosen the film that's been described as the most charming film of the 1980s. It's one of the rare films that gets 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's one of my personal favourites. It's Local Hero. Uh, Tell us why you've chosen that and your story behind that, Norman. Well, it goes back to my origins in Glasgow, in
1: Scotland, and uh, made by um, a great Scottish director, a very naturally funny um, director. I Essentially, mean, Glasgow is a very funny city. It's, when you first see it, it looks fairly miserable. But Glaswegians you know, have some of the best senses of humour that you'll ever come across. And you can be sore laughing, drinking in the pub. And there are very few parts of the world that you actually experience that. And Local Hero just grabs the humour of Scotland and um, the features and just a sort of gawkiness. Um, it, 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 it just captures life in Scotland perfectly,
0: at least in that era, and with a lot of idiosyncrasies in the movie. And for people who don't uh, know, is Glasgow is the city of, of your young childhood.
1: That's where I was born. I, I born, grew up. Um, I left it around about the age of 18. Well, I left it kind of part time to go to, well, 19, actually. I, I went to Glasgow University to do medicine. And then I discovered that was a big mistake staying at home to go to university. So I um, realized that I'd made a mistake staying at home. And I went to I finished my medical degree at the University of Aberdeen. But yeah, I spent my formative years
0: in Glasgow and great affection for it. And, and was it, can can you characterise your childhood as a rough one or was it middle class or? Um, no,
1: we, my parents, um, their parents settled in the Gorbals after migrating from Russia, which was a slum area of Glasgow, which is now largely destroyed. It kind of still exists, but it's, it, um, but it was slum tenements in those days. But like all new migrants um, and the Jews were no different, they worked hard and progressed and moved out into the suburbs and we lived in the suburbs. Uh, we, we weren't rich and for a period of my life, my, um, my father was out of work and we lived in genteel poverty. My father was a terrible businessman as was his father. Actually, to give you an example of this, I'm just to So my, my birth name was Swirsky. Right. And so, two anecdotes about that. So, I grew up to the age of 10 with the name Swirsky. My, grand, my father and his father were in business together, and they were in business together in a garage stroke. And it was a garage in the Gorbals, which sold used cars and also repaired cars. And it was largely serving the Jewish community of Glasgow. And to show you my grandfather's marketing now, his name was Sam Swirsky. and oh, no, no. Yeah, you got it. So in the late 1940s, early 50s, he named his business SS Motors. <laughs> so not surprisingly, some years later, they went bankrupt and, um, and father was out of work. And then he couldn't find work. And he was looking, you know, he was applying for work. He, he was a musician as well, and he had his own... Band, but that never paid very much for the bills. And he couldn't get work. And uh, he
0: changed his name to Swan, and he got work the following week. And, and do you think that's a a, a foreigner thing or an anti-Semitism thing, or, or both? Is it, I mean, is it xenophobia? Or... No, it's, anti- it's, it's anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, and, and right. Yeah, which was alive and
1: well. So Scotland, um, you know, Glasgow, despite being a friendly, very funny city, um, when I went to medical school, In Glasgow, very big class, I think there would be 200 people in the class. You knew within a week, and I'm not sure how you knew, who were the Jews, who were the Catholics, and who were the Protestants. It's a very religiously divided city. Less so now, but it's still there. And the Protestants hate the Catholics. Catholics hated the Protestants. The Jews actually were okay, but there was a fair bit of anti-Semitism around. Um, The Catholics and and the Jews tended to come together, probably because they
0: shared the same
1: weird... Ritualistic religions.
0: (laughs) Okay, so we're moving from the 80s to the 60s for your book. And it was impossible for me to get hold of. I I got a copy on Amazon for $930, but it wouldn't arrive in time. So you very kindly lent me your copy, which I have in front of me, uh, 600 pages of very small type, densely worded um, uh, prose. And it floored me. I mean, it just knocked me on my backside. Uh, so tell us about, please, From the Ends of the Earth, The Peoples of Israel, uh, by Howard Morley Sacker.
1: Yeah, I... I, um, The assumption is... So I grew up Jewish and still identify very strongly as Jewish. and And I grew up in the shadow of the Second World War. And mean, Interestingly, when you grew up in Scotland, you grew up in the shadow of both wars, actually. I mean, I, I was born in the early 50s, but the, um, I can still remember friends of my grandparents who were in the first war. And I can remember when I was a medical student early on, actually looking after people or in, uh, who were in long-term care after the first world war with lung damage, You know, really come towards the end of their lives. And the Second World War was certainly very fresh in people's mind, more so, I think, than in in Australia, because Glasgow had its blitz. Um, You could still see bombed-out buildings around Glasgow. Um, If you went on a drive to Loch Lomond, you passed by petrol dumps where the Germans had had bombed. And the assumption is, I suppose, in people who are not Jewish, is that, Every Jew supports the state of Israel. And I suppose that's true, but it's not as true as you actually might think. And growing up, my adolescent rebellion was to join um, a youth movement whose goal was to settle on kibbutz somewhere in Israel. It was a pioneering youth movement where you learned skills, that Jews often are not recognized for, farming, building things. You know, there's a a very funny, um, what's his name? The the, the very funny guy who's a rabbi, he's he's dead now, but very funny New York comic, who talks about Jews being absolutely useless at anything technical. And what what you want is a Gentile to come in and actually change your light bulb or the thing, because they can do stuff, which Jews can't do anything. Um, And so, and this is kind of the, the image of the, Um, the ghetto Jew, who was bookish and learned and did medicine or law, but didn't do anything practical. So this was a pioneering youth movement. And the goal was to go and live in Israel and dig up the land and plough the fields and build the Jewish state. And in talking about that in 2021, jars with a lot of people because... You know, since then there's been the Six Day War, the occupation of the West Bank, the disenfranchisement of Palestinians, all of which I have a lot of sympathy for, and I, I basically believe in national self determination for the Palestinian people. However, that has not stopped me being somebody who believes that there should be a, a land, a homeland for the Jewish people, and what uh, in Israel. And I don't see how, you know, I don't see how two peoples can't live together. But that's that's kind of current politics. But then it was kind of uncontroversial. Um, Israel had a, what had the, the image that people had in people's minds of Israel in the 50s and 60s was a, this pioneering country doing stuff, egalitarian, um, pioneering social experiments like the kibbutz and so on, and bringing people back home. And the impact of discrimination the holocaust disenfranchisement people forget that now and the and the and the diversity of peoples who made up the jewish state and the stories that they came with and these are the stories that built the land. One of the first things I did when I joined the ABC, well, not the first things, but about a year after I, a year or two after I joined the ABC, I did a series, not a medical series. I did a series called Visions of Israel, yeah. which was a history of the Zionist idea. And a lot of this was incredibly romantic in, in some ways. There, there were, you know, in the 30, 20s and 30s, there were communists. There were different factions of communism who fought with each other. There were kibbutzim, where they drew a line down the dining hall. And if you believed in one faction, you ate on that side, and then the other faction, you in on that side, and they didn't speak to each other. And whole kibbutzim split up. And you had this sort of fiery, diverse things. And so we are used to living in Australia, which is a hugely diverse country, but until that migration occurred into Australia after the white Australia policy went, Israel was the most diverse country in the world. And that book reflects the personal and other stories of people who came to Israel to make up the Jewish homeland. Um, unfortunately, um, the politics of Israel has swung very far to the right since then. And it's, not, it's still a very diverse country, but it is dominated by uh, by views which really leave that diversity behind
0: and some of which
1: I feel quite ashamed about. I
0: spent a, a year on a kibbutz, Far Bloom. Yeah. Which one? Uh, Far Bloom up in the, uh, yeah. uh, the Golden Heights near Kiriat Shimona. Um, a, a lot of my friends um, live next door. Ah, I mean, it, it, it yeah. was just, it was astonishing, but but your book, um, wow, the, 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 the story that that I feel slightly ashamed that I I wasn't across especially given that I lived there for a year, um, is my vision of Israel as a as a Gentile who's uh, you know I'm sort of a citizen of the world but I'm not overly interested in you know Zionism and, and interested in, as much as any other person type thing it's not a specialist subject but it is uh, my view is of European Jewish people fleeing Hitler um, and creating a wonderful country, it's, it's less of the, the Jewish people that come from Africa, for example, that, that come from the Muslim countries, the, the Oriental Jewish people. So to read that book, it was amazing for me, the, the genuinely, uh, just the melting pot that isn't poor people fleeing Germany and France, it's people from, you know, Central Africa and, and places. It, so to create a country from that's amazing. Yeah, and
1: there have been about uh, probably by now six or seven waves of migration to Israel, and they've all had their own impact. <laughs> so prior to the Jewish state, it was a very much a European migration with a sort of socialist, Zionist idea. Then you had the uh, Middle Eastern Jews, rather than African Jews, the Middle Eastern Sparty Jews arriving yeah. from Morocco, Ethiopia. Well, Ethiopia was later but Morocco, Tunisia, North Africa, largely, arrived. And they that created a huge schism in Israel because um, they, they tended to move to disadvantaged areas. They tended to feel neglected by the European domination, which ignored them. And that bitterness flows through to politics today so that you've got, um, I think, Naftali Bennett, the current... Prime Minister of Israel for five minutes. I think he is actually Sephardi origin. Um, But the the Sephardim really supported the right-wing groups because the right-wing politicians exploited that sense of anger at the Israeli Labour Party. And then you had a strong wave of migration from Soviet Union, and uh, they were very conservative um, because they thought any hint of socialism or egalitarianism was communism. And uh, they, they, so those migrations have swung Israel to the right um, in all their diversity.
0: Have you ever been tempted to make Aliyah? Is that how you
1: pronounce it, sorry, Aliyah? Yeah, I, I, I was planning to, yeah, to make Aliyah to uh, go and live in Israel. So a lot of my friends did, and I've got a lot of friends who live in Israel. And I did in my uh, late teens, early 20s, but um, lost that urge.
0: We're going to move from the 60s to the 40s for your song. And you've chosen the Cold Porter song, Every Time We Say Goodbye. Now there are so many different versions of that from Lady Gaga to Ella Fitzgerald to Annie Lennox to Simply Red. Have you got a particular uh, version that you love or is it just the song itself? No, I love Ella Fitzgerald's f-
1: version of the song, but I, d- I just think that Cole Porter was one of the great poets of the, tw- of the 20th century. It sounds amazing to say that, you know, Philip Larkin and Benjamin and so on. But he, you know, th- that, that great loping language, which is American English, and Cole Porter was just a a great example of that. And it really, I mean, I like that song, but I really chose it as a reflection of what I listened to as a child. So I have, you know, I do a lot, this is not just with COVID, I do a lot of um, local radio with the the ABC and so on, and shows which kind of make reference to popular culture. And I have always been shite at at popular culture. It, It passed me by, you know, And you know, so so if you give me a popular cultural reference, I I get very anxious. I go into cold sweat, (laughs) thinking about oh yeah, I really should know about the Kinks or the Beatles or the, you know, I obviously do know a bit about. But my father was a musician, right? As I said earlier, Um, he after he became after he was bankrupt, he actually gave up on finding a a, a job in commerce and he retrained as a music teacher. and my, my father's music collection was, so my, my father's story basically is, grew up in a very poor household in the Gorbals, was bright, he learned musical instruments, woodwind, saxophone, clarinet, um, played, played a lot in his youth, and but got into medical school at Glasgow University, but couldn't afford the fees as they were then in the, uh, just the beginning of the war. And he ran away from home to join a dance band in London, the day, these were the days of the big bands, and he played in big bands during the war. And in fact, at one point, he, he had a bad leg and wasn't conscriptable into the army, but he did actually play in the Entertainment Corps for a while, doing tours it was in North Africa. So his musical tastes were um, of the 30s, 40s, 50s. So I would, and we had a gramophone, and I would get up, and his kids get up early in the morning, and I would go in, And I'd put on Frank Sinatra, Ella Fitzgerald, um, Nat King Cole, and that's, you know, Sarah Vaughan, and that's the music that I still preferentially listen to. I mean, when I was doing my house jobs, my first, uh, what you call in Australia, your residency, when I was doing my house jobs in London, um, I was doing a one and two roster, but I I really made sure I got out on my days off, even though I was completely knackered. And I used to go, it used to cost a lot of money, it used to cost five pounds to get in, which is a lot of money, as you would remember, Nigel, um, to go to Ronnie Scott's jazz club in yep. Soho. Tiny little jazz club. But you would go and you'd be at a table, which is, you know, a metre from the stage, and there was Sarah Vaughan singing a metre away from you, you know, things like that. That's what I grew up with. And so that... that song kind of brings all that back to me, as well as the fact that some of these songwriters and composers were writing poetry. So I have to ask,
0: um, I mean, I've spent lots of wonderful nights in Ronnie Scott's, but I have to ask, um, are you a romantic? Would you describe yourself as a romantic? Uh,
1: Kind of, yes. I mean, I I wish... You know, if I see a 30s movie, I think, oh God, wouldn't it be nice to live in the 30s? It would be absolute shite to live in the 30s. You know, you'd be crazy. dead
0: by now. Your life expectancy would be 30. Yeah,
1: and you know, and you wouldn't be living in Hollywood and living with stars and watching, but you know, and living in a Busby Berkeley world. Um, but yeah, i I'm, I'm, I'm a sucker. I, I'll go and see a schmaltzy movie, and come out and just be. Overwhelmed by it, and I'll go with one of my more cynical friends, and they'll say, "Well, that was complete crap, wasn't it? You know, <laughs> romantic, slushy crap." And I think, oh, I like that.
0: <laughs> Essentially, because I, I, I've read lots of um, lots of your interviews that you've given, probably over the last only ones you've given this. This century, but um, you describe yourself and other people have described yourself, usually very friendly, uh, as uh, a bit pessimistic and a bit dour. And you, you don't come across as pessimistic and dour in this conversation. You come across as charming and, and affable. But uh, would you call yourself pessimistic and dour? Yeah, I do,
1: actually. Um,
0: that,
1: that, I, I have dark moments. Right. And um, yeah, so yeah, I. I so I, I know how to turn it on, is, is, the, is the answer to that. And so like a lot of people who know how to turn it on, they're also covering up a little bit of darkness inside. And, uh, yeah, I put that partly down to Glasgow. Um, but you know, in my defence, I do well, not I have to defend anything to do with that, but the, um, they do say that pessimists are the realists in this world. And, um, and when, you, when you talk about, you know, earlier on, you yes, asked what keeps you grounded... It's it's the knowledge, the, the absolute firm knowledge that if something good, good is happening to you, it won't last forever. So enjoy <laughs> it while you can um, and don't believe that there's anything special about this situation. So, I, so, for example, if you take, you know, whilst obviously COVID has increased my profile, my profile was reasonably high before that, and I just... I just knew that there was nothing, when people come up to you in the street and they profess to like you and you know, et cetera, et cetera, want to be your friend. For a lot of people, it's it's because, it's because I'm in the media and have access to a large audience. I'm not saying it's cynical, but there's kind of an aura around it. And the biggest mistake you can make in the media is to believe that all these people are your friends. So it's not that I'm paranoid, but I'm very careful who I call a friend. And, um, and so it's just that d- kind of disbelief and knowledge. And it's not that I'm distrustful of people, new people that I meet, but people who meet me know that they... Um, so whilst I'm talking um, openly to you and giving of myself, when somebody meets me normally and they're a stranger, they, they often don't get that much out of me. Right, it takes a
0: while for me to warm up. Yeah, and and I mean, it's, it's interesting that, that there's a huge difference between attention and friendship, and that doesn't mean those people are are, are, are cynical or horrible. I remember once I, I was in a pub in London with one of the members of Led Zeppelin, and and I couldn't stop looking at him, and and I kept on saying to "Don't look at him; you'll probably embarrassed." But I thought, "Bloody hell, that's a that's a member of Led Zeppelin." So it we it's just fame is a weird. You know, it's a weird mistress. Um, we're going to move from the forties um, uh, to Scotland to the grey one to a mountain that caused me enormous problems to pronounce because it's spelt L I A T H A C K. So I would call it Liafack, but the T is pronounced as a G. Your place on Five of My Life is. Llia Gach, a uh, mountain in the northwest of Scotland. Would you mind telling us, describing it, and telling us yeah. why you chose most, it? Most Scots would just call it literally leathach Right. Um, it's a ch. You're, you've taken the Gaelic
1: um, spelling, which is good. Very, very impressed. But most <laughs> of us who climb would call it leathach So this is our uh, one of the thing. Again, not a very Jewish thing to be doing, but I was a bit of a mountain climber when I was at medical school. I love the mountains. Australians don't don't often like mountains. Australians often feel relaxed with the great open plains. and I get very nervous in the great open plains, but I love mountains. And I'm grossly exaggerating here because there's plenty of Australians who love mountains. Um, And when I say mountain climbing, it was very rarely your fingernail stuff, although I can tell you a story where I once almost died on a mountain. But the... Leithach is without question my favourite mountain in Scotland. And you go on a single track, what becomes a single track road, usually starting in Inverness, and you track down Long Drive. And it's at the top of uh, Torridon, Loch Torridon, which is an inlet on the west coast of Scotland. The west coast of Scotland climate change is going to change this because the Gulf Stream is being interrupted, but the Gulf Stream comes across the Gulf of Mexico, and the west coast of Scotland is both a bit wet, but it's also warm-ish right. compared to the rest of Scotland, certainly the east coast of Scotland. And anyway, you, you're you driving along the single track road through uh, Moorland, so fairly flat Moorland with mountains in the distance, and you come around a corner, and there is this and I, I actually, as a chill goes down my back, as I s- describe it, you come round a corner and this massive buttress suddenly rises from the moorland. And it is just the most scary but majestic mountain from that angle that you'll ever see. And it's a, it's, it's a bit of a tricky wall. I mean, most of the time when you're obviously climbing, you're, you're scrambling and climbing up. It's a bit tricky at times. And it's a full day walk, but it's um, it's a great mountain. Once you're at the top, you get this amazing view of the West Coast. Yeah,
0: you can see the Isle of Skye and everything. I, I've been watching lots of films of it in preparation for this, and it's a ridge walk along... I've never heard of the word Munro before, but Munro is the Scottish word for a, for a mountain in Scotland that's above 3,000... Uh, feet three thousand feet and, and over. That's yes, right. But you mentioned that the story you once almost died on a mountain, and I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna ask you to tell that story because I've got a quote from you. Uh, I forget which interview it's from, where you say I've got a very strong fear of death, and you've just told me you almost died on a mountain. So it would be bad interviewing if I didn't say tell me that story. So there
1: were there were two, by and large, there were two people I used to climb with who were in my medical school class and i was coming to i was leaving scotland or in britain to go to come to australia this 78 and we decided to have a climbing trip a few day climbing trip on sky the island of sky before um, i left it was kind of a farewell trip and so we did we, we, we planned out our, our our hikes and usually when you are Climbing mountains. So yes, Monroe's are over 3,000. You never used to climb anything under 3,000 feet. So it was always, it had to be a Munro because there was this whole thing about Munro banging. <laughs> um, some people call it, you know, there's a very funny psychiatrist who wrote a piece in the Scotsman newspaper once about chronic Munrosis, which is this neurotic <laughs> desire, obsession to climb every Munro in Scotland, which many people do have. Anyway... We were we'd chosen various mountains to climb, and there's a very spectacular mountain on the island of Skye. It's part of the Cuillins, which is a ridge of mountains in Skye, and it's called Um And there are two ways to do Skruanagillian. One is what is sorry when you're when you're climbing a mountain, you, usually you, there's a you you follow a climbing guide, and I think it was called the Highland Mountain Guide or something like that. There was, there was basically a bible of mountains which gave you a description of how you do it and so on very interestingly written mm-hmm. because they had language that you had to interpret carefully before you went out so there was a route up Skurnagilion which people used to call the tourist route which is a fairly, fairly straightforward path it wasn't that easy but it was fairly straightforward to get up to the top and then there was in inverted commas the interesting route. Now, if the, any mountain guide says, in Scotland, says interesting, then you should wear nappies and bicycle clips and brown trousers because you're, you are going to shit yourself on them often. And there's sometimes mountains that you probably should use a rope on, but you because that's not done, you scramble up. So the interesting route on in Skurnagillion is via a pinnacle ridge which from memory is three or four pinnacles. I think it's three. And so we, we left and we decided that we were going to do the pinnacle ridge. And the thing about the pinnacle ridge is when you get to the final pinnacle, you've got to abseil off. There's no way down. You've got to abseil off the final pinnacle. And then you get down to a little gap between that and the main peak. And then you've got to climb up. There's no other way down. You've got to get up to the peak and then climb down from the peak to get back. And you go back by the tourist route. So we, none of us had done this mountain before. And we left early and it wasn't great weather. And it just took us longer than we thought. Each pinnacle was just quite difficult. And we eventually get to the final pinnacle and it was November three o'clock in the afternoon. That means it's starting to get dark. And the wind was blowing and it started to rain stroke sleet. And we had a rucksack with ropes in it. And we, we end up at the top of this last pinnacle and it was the size of a table, a reasonable sized table. And there was nowhere on it that you could see that you would tie the rope onto, to abseil off. And we just couldn't see it. And we're getting quite panicky because this is actually now getting quite dangerous. And the friend, the friend who was carrying the ropes, put them down. And while we looked around, and the wind got so high that it blew the rucksack with the ropes off. No. Yeah, and luckily it lodged um, about fifteen feet down. But at fifteen feet down, a fairly sheer slope. The third friend, the, the third, the, the other person who was with us actually rock climbed down 15 feet without ropes on to pick up the rucksack and saved our lives. So anyway, we get get the rucksack on, we get the the rucksack up and it's really bad weather, we're gonna do it. And we find this tiny little smooth polished piece of rock. And it was the only thing that we could see that you could possibly put the rock on. And the slightest little thing and the rope would jump off it. (laughs) Anyway, they knew that I was the biggest coward of the three And if they left me up there, I'd die because I wouldn't come down. So they said, you got to go first. So they threw the rope down and it snagged on a loop on another piece of rock over there. So in other words, it didn't fall down to the gap and you had to get down to between the mountain, between the the pinnacle and the the main peak. And and the loop was a long way from uh, from the bottom. So I said, well, what am I supposed to do about that? They said, oh, don't worry about it. When you get down to the bottom of the loop, you just give it a bit of a yank and it'll come f- free. And I, I looked at them and they looked at me. They knew, I knew that they knew that um, they were bullshitting me, that there was no way they knew what would happen when I got down to the bottom of the loop. But there was no option. I had to go. So I go down and I, I get to the bottom of the loop. And they said, yeah, just, just tug it. So I tugged it and nothing happened. Just tug it again, you'll be fine. So I tugged it again, nothing happened. Well, now you're gonna have to tug it really hard. So I tugged it really hard and I was looking up and it came away and the rope hit me full in the face <laughs> and I lost my specs. <laughs> and I forgot that I was abseiling and I took my hand off the rope to grab my specs and re- suddenly realized I was actually drop falling. You know, Put my hand in my mouth and grab the rope. Anyway, we, we got down got up to the peak, got back. By the time we were coming off the peak, it was dark. And you had to actually get across a river and find a way across the river. Eventually, we get back to the car. We go to a pub in a place called Sliggen to, um, you know, because we're actually, we knew that we'd actually had a close one. And we we decided we'd reread the fucking manual, you know, the the guide. (laughs) And what the guide said, which we'd missed in the thing was, never come off this mountain in the dark. (laughs) Because more people have been lost in the peat bog than on the mountain. (laughs) So
0: we poured ourselves another whiskey. (laughs) But so so tell about your fear of death. Was that what caused it, or did you always have it? Oh no! no, When
1: when I'm confronted with those things, that that fear of death is goes. I mean, that's not that's. I I wasn't frightened of dying at that moment. Um, I wasn't frightened of. I really wasn't frightened of dying when we lost the ropes. It was all kind of all happening in a moment of time. Um, and now, you know, I would give my life for my children. No, the the, the fear of dying is actually um, fear. It's it's more of a fear of old age and dying. It's sort of um, the blackness and the oblivion. It's, it's an egocentric thing. E- egoists are more fearful of dying than people who aren't so egoistic. It's, you know, how would the world manage without my ego in it? And, and you can't <laughs> I'm imagine... And You can't imagine the blackness of death. Yeah, I just, I really do. Um, I can get quite panicky about it. But when, but the few occasions in my life, there have been a couple of occasions in my life where I've come close to death, I, that, that has not been part of it at, um,
0: at all a fear of death. So this is a perfect link to your fifth and final choice on Five of My Life. You've messed with the format a bit. Unlike Cole Porter, who loved his extravagant possessions, I had to push you three times to come up with a a possession. And you eventually took a creative slant on the format. And you- (laughs) That's because I've read your book, mate. Your your, uh, possession on Five of My Life is control. Tell us about that, Norman. Well, I'll tell you about the possession
1: thing beforehand. I don't know what it is about me, is that there are things in my life that I like, but not as much as the people around me, not as much as my kids. And if I lost them all, I I really wouldn't mind. So I've got nice paintings on the wall, not expensive ones, nice paintings on the wall. I like nice things. Um, Some people say I'm obsessive-compulsive about nice things. I mean, I've just thrown out a whole set of cutlery and bought some nice, cool cutlery. Um, But again, if that got lost, big deal. Um, So there's nothing much... That that I that I like, but what one thing that I cherish is is having agency over my life. Um, and I get very shirty. The 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 ABC, which is a large bureaucratic organisation, um, I you know I'm, I'm renowned in the ABC for railing against the rules and anybody telling me what to do or trying to adjust my career and so on. I, I really resist that and, I, and it gets me into trouble. And because I just, I don't, you know, if it means I lose my job in the ABC over arguing for something at the moment, they're trying to take away my engineer for my show, which is a quite, even though it's 20 minutes a week, it's quite a complicated show to get to the air and they want to take it away and I'm just being a pain in the arse about it. And I couldn't give a shit about that. Um, and, and also I could think it was, you know, they've got these rules Um, I I did an ad ad almost for charity for the Cancer Institute in New South Wales on bowel cancer screening, which I got paid a a pittance for, and I did it really out of a sense of duty. And I didn't didn't even bother telling the ABC, you're supposed to get permission. I couldn't give a shit about that. And they didn't care about it until the Australian phones up saying, what's Norman Swan doing doing an ad? And then, of course, the ABC goes into connection. So I, I, I tell you those stories simply because... I hate somebody else having agency over my life. I want to have the freedom to do it. And I suppose I've been very lucky in my life that while I'm having a moan about the ABC, the ABC actually has given me that freedom. Just occasionally, the large bureaucracy gets in the way. It's usually once every two years, thereabouts, and we get over it and I move on. But I'm so lucky that I've got a job where I'm my own boss and I decide what I wanna do. I take criticism, I get feedback, I'm on a journey to improvement, but it's in a collegiate way, and I make the decisions about my life somebody else doesn't. And I feel unwell when that's taken away from me. And, um, and, and so that's probably the most cherished th- thing in my life, is having that freedom and that latitude. And there's a lot in my book, so you think you know what's good for you, about that. So people, a lot of health books jump downstream to things that really don't count that much, fat, protein, s- supplements, whether it's hit or moderate exercise and so on. In the end, a lot of these things don't count because a lot of people don't have the agency to even make the decision to have 40 minutes of exercise a day. And so it's how you're, they're in jobs where they're oppressed by bad management or told how to micromanage and how they've got to achieve things. And, um, and that is erosive and causes illness, causes disease, makes you more susceptible to diabetes, heart disease, cancer, and so on. Sounds very soft, but there's actually very hard science behind it. So what I cherish is that sense of control. And if I lost it, it would ruin
0: my life. You know, I, that, that's such a... Uh, I mean, I love the fifth choice on five of my life. That is such a wonderful... Uh choice and story behind it and and it was the strongest theme for me that came out of the your your book not your choice but the book that you've written uh, so you think you know what's good for you it is it, it's appalling people from on high finger waving telling other people how much i don't know vitamin d or pilates they should do and you go guys turn the telescope around they haven't got control over their life it's it's a holistic message you you you, you have been so wonderful to come on here and share your stories honestly and authentically and vulnerably, that there's one final question. It's a trick question, mate, which is, uh, who would you like to hear on Five of My Life
1: next? Well,
0: what I love about interviews like
1: this is that you, particularly where you're not rushed, is that it allows you to hear the person behind the story. And I do remember one um, interview in the camera who did it with Madonna, funnily enough which just showed that she's actually quite a thoughtful, deep person. So I don't actually have the person, but it, it, it is somebody for whom you think this person is just deeply shallow, but in fact, they're not. And they, they give they give life and, and things in it a, a, a lot of meaning. And, um, and there, are, there are a lot of those people around. And I, you know, and also it's people who don't get credit either for what they do and don't want credit for what they do. So I'm giving you an archetype rather than an individual person.
0: Okay, and within that, I'm going to give Madge a call and see if I can get Madonna as well. Okay, good. (laughs) Dr Norman Swan, you've been an absolute angel to come on Five of My Life. Thank you so much indeed. Thank you for inviting me, it's been fun. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholas.